This podcast is supported by the Tan Chin Tuan Chinese Culture and Civilization Program. Hello, James Jack with you. This is Yale and U.S. Artist in Residence podcast. I'm an American artist who grew up in Manhattan, then lived in Japan for the last 10 years. Now I'm an assistant professor at Yale and U.S. College in Singapore and director of the AIR program. Thank you for joining us in a series of conversations with artists residing in Singapore for one semester to focus on creative research and artistic process in Southeast Asia. In this podcast, we sit down with artists just before the end of their residency to reflect on their experiences. There is a wave that weaves through the practice of all the artists in this program. It is a wet wave. That is why I am thinking of this residency as an archipelagic AIR in Singapore. Here, AIR, as in Aie, Bahasa Malayu, is a wetness that permeates our bodies, along with the air, English, we breathe. We hold art central in the culture of liberal arts to explore the impact creative practice has on the world today. Community, gardens, and ethical cohabitation. In this episode, artists in residence Andrew Yang and Krista Donner discuss community, gardens, and ethical cohabitation, among other topics. I'm excited to launch the first episode in the Archipelagic AIR series now. In this episode, I'll share the vision for this AIR established in a liberal arts college in Southeast Asia. I care very much about creating space and time for artists to be creative. The AIR podcast aims to put process, community, criticality, dialogue, and creativity in center stage. In her book, Art for Social Change and Cultural Awakening, Tung Ik reflects, the residence allows artists to re-examine their sociocultural worlds in light of otherness, which in turn is made to reflect on itself. This is why art practice in residence is said to unfold creatively through a process of mutual reflexivity within a particular culture, community, or place. This residency is about engaging with sociocultural worlds in Singapore today through artistic perspectives. By inhabiting a different space, artists in residence not only reflect, but also challenge, critique, and re-envision the worlds we inhabit. What would it take to re-island Singapore? Revisit its oppressed past in the realities of the present. Here, each artist practice can be considered part of a collection of branches put into place into the form of a navigation chart. This chart brings us out of colonial maps focused on the extraction of resources and the marginalization of islanders toward the definition of culture in the plural, cultures, islands. It is online, open access, and remains in memory as the moments when the chart is needed most it cannot be held in a physical form. Traces of its roots remain in sea currents and tides, air movements and weather shifts, yet to trigger its memory requires a reassembly of indigenous ways of knowing. Dreams as the basis of reality, ancestors as sources of wisdom, spirits as the protectors of places, imagination as our foundation. This AIR program charts an archipelagic form of residence in a multi-centered sea. Each artist engages in wet time that continues beyond their dwelling in Singapore to discover relationships between islands. From 2020 to 2022, different artists will be in residence in Singapore for one semester to engage uniquely with the liberal arts ethos while pursuing their artworks creative research, and community engagements in Singapore. 
The artists selected for this program will each react and respond to the environs of Southeast Asia by reflecting upon historical and current circumstances from their own artistic perspectives to make new works that critically engage with the world today. The diverse experiences of artists while in residence will continue blossoming into innovative artworks, collaborative projects, and impactful research for many years to come after their residency. Our first AIRs, Young and Donner, have been in residence since January for their first opportunity working in Southeast Asia. Young works with uncertainty in the overlapping spaces between art and science. Donner works with the body and reproduction in ways that are sensitive to broader consciousness. While each retains their own art practice, they chose to work as a duo, engaging with ecological, social, and empirical realms in meaningful ways that illuminate the potential for positive transformation during the residency. Their residence has been full of surprises as the global COVID-19 pandemic arose during their first month here and shaped their experiences up to the end of the residency now. Today we are spreading the virus of creativity, staying creative at home with kids, ourselves, and others online. Here we think out loud together with Michelle Lim, who will be moderating today's conversation inside of the studio. Michelle is a curator and art historian who completed her PhD at Princeton, was a curatorial fellow at the Whitney Independent Study Program, and is now assistant professor at the School of Art, Design, and Media at Nanyang Technological University. Krista, Andy, thanks for joining us. Uh, so we're here in James' studio and thanks James for giving us this great introduction and letting us use your space to do this uh, conversation. I thought we can go back to the very beginning of how this all started uh, when you guys decided to apply for residency on the other end of the world. Yeah. So do you want to talk a bit about your proposal and what you were thinking and what you imagine might have been ahead? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so when we were invited to apply for this artist residency, I think we were both very excited because uh, neither of us have ever been to Southeast Asia, much less Singapore. And so that was just such a unique opportunity um, for us to be able to explore a new place, get to learn um, about a whole different kind of culture and environment. And so the there was also the case that how our work would connect to or explore aspects of Chinese culture. And in thinking about what made sense, Krista and I have sort of have very long-term shared interests in ecology and the idea of gardening and landscape. And so um, we approached the proposal for our residency here through the lens of the garden. Um, but that includes like the sort of classical Chinese garden or scholar's garden of antiquity um, that sort of poses a sort of picturesque model uh, of the world. But then we also were interested in the fact that, um, you know, for myself, I'm, I'm Asian American the, the garden also has a significance for Asians in diaspora. One of the first things that uh, that Asians do as immigrants wherever they go is actually plant gardens, truck gardens, market gardens. And for that reason, a lot of East Asians in other parts of the world take on the, the job of being a greengrocer or something like that. And so because there's so many community gardens in Singapore, mm -hmm. we're also really interested in the idea of exploring the notion of the garden in a very broad sense both as a physical place but also this metaphorical place and especially also because uh, Singapore calls itself a city in a garden and so there were multiple spatial and temporal scales we could think about the idea of the garden here in Chinese culture and ecology all at once. Yeah I mean I think we were we were both really excited at the opportunity to to learn about to really dig into Chinese culture, but also this really special series of cultures that are all mixed together, specifically in Singapore, through these outdoor spaces and, and the different cultural approaches to that, to the natural world and the city. Um, 
but we really wanted an excuse to like take the studio, take the, take our practice outside and be um, in, out in the natural world, interacting with, with communities and with other organisms, right? Um, so that hasn't turned out quite how we expected. Um, but in fact, it's been a really interesting time to be here, mm-hmm. I think, um, because, because the, the shutting down of um, businesses has meant that we, uh, we've seen things grow that never would have grown otherwise. We've seen insect life that, that normally would be sort of eliminated. We've seen plants growing, getting a little wild, um, even on campus um, in places that are usually really carefully manicured. So we've seen these two sides of uh, these natural spaces, both the curated sort of the, the, the more um, classical garden structures of the city and, that, and, the, and the, um, the wilder, messier ecology that, that comes back very quickly when uh, humans leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, that's, that's like, you're absolutely right. Um, I think you're actually getting to see a side of Singapore that a lot of us in Singapore haven't seen ourselves. Um, I mean, with this pandemic going on and us going through a circuit breaker, what might be called a lockdown in other countries, um, it's meant that, uh, as you said, a lot of plants, grasses, insects, and even animals uh, like otters at at the hospitals uh, are coming out to play. And uh, that's been really exciting, especially for the little kids, I think, who have not been able to see that growing up, you know. So um, this is a very introspective time for many of us in Singapore as well. Um, Not just because um, we're such a fast-paced city in Southeast Asia. Uh, So this is really a very interesting time. And uh, it's very exciting to have this conversation with you guys to have uh, this kind of different view um, on Singapore. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Singapore is often known as uh, the Garden City. Uh, Well, we're also known as the Lion City, but I don't think we have many lions here right now. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but gardens, yes, we do. And uh, I think you guys mentioned Chicago is also often uh, called a Garden City, right? Maybe we can talk a little bit of some about some of the resonance uh, between the two cities. Arriving here and seeing not just um, not just that there's a lot of plants. I don't know. Not to, I think in Chicago the idea of a garden city is dealt with very differently. We have some green rooftops and we have um, there's a lot of park spaces, uh, but it's nothing at all like the level of greenery and the way that Singapore has been built around this idea of, of lush um, cultivated green spaces throughout the city to really make, um, to really make every corner of it, you know, like under the highways, over the highways, you know, in these tall apartment buildings to have trees everywhere. Um, We were really not prepared for that. That that was really exciting to see. And so we're actually really interested in when we go back to Chicago, um, kind of continuing this conversation and thinking about interviewing people who have relationships with garden spaces and, and nature preserves and um, natural space, different kinds of gardens in Chicago, talk about their relationship with ecology in the city and kind of comparing and contrasting. Cause I think there's a really different sort of um, citywide and national relationship to those spaces, even though they, they kind of call themselves a similar Name for Chicago, it's so the city motto is herbs and horto from Latin, so city in a garden, and that was sort of um, built from the idea. Basically, you know, it it was part of the boosterism and the the promotional pitch for the city. So the city isn't founded until the 1830s, and at that time, it was basically a swamp on the edge of a prairie on a very large lake. And so um, the commercial value of the city was evident because it would be a transportation hub, but what would make it someplace people would want to invest? And so um, a lot of the motivation was to create uh, a garden from a place that was basically a swamp. And this was a garden in, a, in the classic European sense of geomet- um, geometric boulevards, 
a lot of greenery, trees, um, in some ways modeled off uh, also what had been done in New York City. And so um, that notion of the garden is just as much uh, a speculative proposition that's really also about business and commerce, like what will make this city something that people will want to come to and build. And so, um, you know, build a life around. And, and in that way, I actually also see connections to Singapore. I mean, here, of course, you, you didn't have to build... Um, you know, it, it was already a, a tropical jungle. And so you you build a city within it. So it's, you know, the aspect of the greenery is already there. But, um, you know, I certainly understand from what I've read that a lot of also what Lee Kuan Yew or other people were trying to do in the nation building of Singapore was to make the Garden City was also a very appeal, uh, something that's supposed to appeal to a, to globally to make Singapore stand out as a place where people want to come, want to do business, um, and so in that way, I think there's actually um, uh, a shared aspect to how the garden operates. Yeah, I, I, I think you hit on several um, really good points that I've been thinking about a little bit myself. I mean, even the idea of gardens in Singapore, how and why uh, our uh, first prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, um, wanted to have gardens. Um, I somehow feel that maybe there was some sentiment involved as well as we move to becoming more urbanized and more towards, without these plants, we would really be a concrete jungle, uh, much like uh, New York. Um, so uh, I think it was this idea that we wouldn't completely lose uh, things because even when you go to a lot of the flats in the neighborhoods right now, you do see the um, a lot of people trying to retain that sense of garden with plants in the corridor, right, really spilling out. And especially right now when people are at home so much more, I think um, there's this huge increase in activity among the urban gardeners. Uh, yeah. And... Um, but this does also resonate with me actually thinking about the arts as a project in Singapore. When we think about um, what do we imagine a global city to be, uh, having that kind of balance between uh, nature and um, that kind of uh, industry or business that they are actually trying to grow at high speed. And uh, here in Singapore, we've been trying to um, grow the art sector much the way, as you were talking about why gardens, and I think a lot of us uh, trying to um, put that effort into the arts and into um, greening the city. Um, it is a kind of like, there is some symbiotic relationship with uh, business and industry and economy, and we can't really get away from that completely. Um, I was thinking too that uh, maybe I could ask both of you to also elaborate a bit more on what you're taking away about the differences between gardens. I think that we've had some earlier conversations we touched on um, differences in gardens in Chicago and Singapore. And we talked a little bit more about formal models in the sense of um, Chinese gardens. Uh, we talked about English gardens a little bit, a, a little bit about Japanese approach, as well as, of course, what happens at home in the kitchen windowsill. Well, one one aspect that I'm, I mean, I'm still sort of soaking it up. There's so many different approaches to garden gardening and gardens, um, from the the more aesthetic approach to um, we've met we've met practitioners here who are really focused on the healing aspects of the garden and really working with it as a um, not just in terms of medicinal herbs, but in terms of therapeutic um, working with senior citizens to kind of uh, get them moving and active in that process. Um, to people who are, yeah, just growing things because they want to they want to have food that's not covered, sprayed with chemicals, right? Um, so it's that's something that it's it's also made me think a lot about the relationship between gardening and community, and we have. Um, I was thinking about the U.S. I was also thinking about a, a residency we did in Berlin a few years ago where, that was not focused on gardens, but we were really seeing the way that community gardens um, operated as sort of a social hub. Um, there were these outdoor spaces where um, 
where the gardens were very messy, actually. They weren't very pretty at all, but they had, everybody had benches out and it was, it was kind of a place where people would come and have a drink and, and stay up late talking um, and, and just hang out. It was like their yard because no one, no one had a front yard. There was not room for that, but that was really a social space. And they would just hang out in nature in their, <laughs> in their allotment garden, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas um, here in the community gardens, there's definitely a sense of community, um, because of the, the temperature, right? It happens usually very early in the morning, sometimes in the evening, but it has to happen during specific times of day. Um, and, and it's, it's a different kind of community. Like, uh, a lot of them are set up, a lot of the allotment garden, gardens are set up with each person has a distinct, um, box that they use. Um, and you, there's certain plants you can or can't use sometimes. Um, but it's, it's much more regulated, um, and then there's definitely people who, who move outside of that in interesting ways as well. People actually build sort of huts and yeah. cottages in this allotment space. And the space and the ecology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we've really been taken, at the time we've been able to spend, see all of the different varieties of gardening. And so, you know, I started out with the, that term community garden, but there's so many varieties of what that constitutes here. And so Krista was mentioning like in some of the um, HDB sort of areas with the towers, there are allotment gardens that are connected by town councils. And so in some ways they seem to mirror the the towers in that you go to this space, each person has one standardized footprint of an area that they use and they individually tend to. And someone coordinates that, but there isn't necessarily a lot of interaction between the plots. It's a shared space, but it's not necessarily collective, right? People aren't gardening together. They just happen to be gardening adjacently, (laughs) if that makes sense. Whereas we've also come across other models of that where um, it's much more collective, where people are grow and decide together in a shared area rather than having a distinct allotment. So we've visited, there's one called Jurong Sky Garden. Yeah, that's um, That has more of that feel. There's still central people who, who make the key decision, but there aren't these set allotments in that same kind of way. And then we've also been um, uh, learning a lot about people who are doing these, what, what has been described as sort of guerrilla gardening, where they're gardening in these spaces that are not sanctioned um, but they might be near flats or in between them, and they take it upon themselves to start growing food or growing things. And then there's tensions, of course, between like, well, that's not a sanctioned space. How can it become sanctioned? Some of these things end up being communal, collective, very informally maintained. And so it's been interesting to talk to different people about the ways in which these spaces also have evolved from being strictly almost, you know, un, un, not just unsanctioned, but illegal and some people wanting the place to be removed or tidied up to then being embraced. And then how that interacts with what I understand are these other projects that like N Park runs, N Parks run the community in bloom, which tries to support different um, areas, you know, having these kinds of spaces. And so I think that's what's also been just exciting for us is that we see the diversity of forms that, um, this kind of collective endeavor takes here. I think that uh, living in a city like Singapore, you sort of have a somewhat skewed uh, attitude towards a natural life. Here, we often think of um, natural life. It it comes like in the form of mosquitoes, cockroaches, (laughs) lizards, um, that are not seen as part of this huge natural ecology or ecosystem. Uh, but tends to be cast in the role of villains, you know, in our world here. Uh, so, and that also means that when we have, say, the return of the otters in Singapore, we are overwhelmingly excited or butterflies even. We're not quite sure how to deal with it. And I think that's something we're still navigating because there's also something that's too much of a good thing. I think you may have heard that otters have been randomly visiting koi ponds and just like having a like buffet and just throwing fish around like really expensive koi. They're just like flinging them around. You've identified uh, quite interestingly a space that maybe we haven't really discussed that much. Uh, through the gardens that uh, where uh, I think Krista talked about how mornings um, 
uh, were a time, and that's something that uh, always struck me. Um, Because people often say that, uh, well, you know, how do you get used to it? There seems to be no seasons here. How do you get a sense of time passing? But I realized that here, because of the temperature uh, range and all, time it has a very different texture, uh, and the sounds of the morning are very different from noon. Um, I think that you've been doing some work on that. I, I imagine. Um, I wanted to come back actually to talk about uh, your original plans and ideas for the residency period, and um, so much has happened. I'm just wondering how they have changed since that very how you envision. Yeah, I mean, I think I think when we came in. It, In terms of the content, I don't think the content has changed that much, except that we've learned a lot more um, about the way that gardens operate here, the way that the, the many, many different ways that people interact with local ecology. So our knowledge of that has has definitely informed some directions we've taken. the The fact that halfway through the residency, um, the circuit breaker happened. Obviously, really impacted how much we could uh, travel outside of Singapore and within Singapore, and the, the kind of you know we had intended to do so much more interviewing and and just visiting these different spaces that we really haven't been able to do. On the on the other hand, um, we really got to know. I mean, we've been based at the at the university. We've been based at Yale and US, um, living on the campus, teaching on the campus. Um, And again, because the the landscaping services stopped, and that you know we were sort of stuck in in our apartment the whole time, as was everyone else, uh, we really got to know that location very deeply. So, I was doing a lot of sound recording, just you know, on daily walks outside, um, recording like the frogs that were singing at night, recording the cicadas singing. Um, thinking about how water, how you can hear water in different places on the campus. Um, and these things that I, I wasn't really, I wouldn't have paid much attention to, I don't think, if, if we hadn't been forced to be in this one space. I would have been, you know, we were treating that as a home base initially and going to these much more, you know, the Singapore Botanic Gardens and the, the dairy farm and these, these places that are much more, um, you know, touristic kind of spaces uh, for people to see engage with nature. So I think that was actually a really interesting opportunity. So the, the pace of the practice has changed. Right. Yeah. And this and a spatial scale for sure. I think, you know, we started to keep snails, yeah. um, <laughs> praying mantis. I, I would, um, I would collect insects for the praying mantis to eat every day. And we found the praying mantis in our apartment. In our we apartment, didn't, yeah. We didn't, we didn't collect go. Them. Yeah. Um, we would watch these certain jackfruit grow on campus and see like the squirrels eating them or, um, you know, so I, now that we're talking, you're saying that, I'm like, wow, I guess I should revisit my Instagram mm -hmm. stream because I think so much of it became this micro observational yeah. thing of what we could see basically on campus and interact with there as opposed to producing stuff all the time. But, you know, maybe I want to return, you've already really touched on this, both of you, uh, the idea of the circuit breaker, because you said, oh, someplace it's called the lockdown. The lockdown is this idea, it's it's carceral, it's like a prison, right? You're, you're, it's punitive. The circuit breaker is an interesting metaphor because if you think about it, it's like, it's a device that's that's um, built in to keep something that should be running a certain way from overheating or breaking. So if you have this electric current, the circuit breaker monitors that and then shuts things down with the hope that of course you flip it and it goes back. And so um, all of the economic hyperactivity of the economic center of Singapore, you know, obviously was, you know, and, and all of that global travel, it overheated the circuit had to be broken. <laughs> and then, you know, what is allowed to then happen in that space of recovery of time? And as you were talking about all of the plants that sort of grew back, all of the grass, because people weren't there to maintain and to mow, it was remarkable. It, our experience of June and July has been so different than when we came because we're seeing so many more insects. I'm, I'm also trained as an entomologist, so I'm like seeing all these butterflies, all these insects that we didn't see before yeah. because everything was so tightly controlled and manicured that are now out in pro proliferation. And so, and 
all the gardeners and everyone else we've talked to have also noted this. They're just like, it's something that Singaporeans themselves just haven't seen, as you alluded to, Michelle. And so I think that's been really important. And the question is like, will that circuit breaking, like the whole circuit got overheated, there was time for recovery now that the electricity is flowing again, but will there be a new balance or a new negotiate space where maybe some places the grass can grow? longer. Right. What does it mean to reset? To reset. reset, Yeah. And so will that reset um, just be business as usual or can it be something different? I think we're especially interested to see what happens in terms of the U.S. that way too, of course. Like, will we be able to really rethink and reimagine? I was talking to a landscape gardener yesterday he said the one thing you need to be able to do if you're going to be a landscape, and he, he actually educates a lot of the landscape um, designers and gardeners in Singapore um, through diploma pro- programs and through end parks. And he's like, the one thing you need is imagination. Like, if you lack imagination, you can't truly be a, uh, a gardener. And so I'm like, oh, you know, what are you imagining for post-circuit breaker Singapore? You know, what, what are the untapped opportunities that business as usual, like the constant flow of electricity through the system, you know, hopefully that pause can really give space for a different kind of imagination. Well, it's six months uh, later, but uh, welcome to Singapore. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I think people have, uh, scientists have also started talking about uh, what they call anthropos, which is, uh, I think a lot of scientists are out there gathering data that they couldn't possibly have a chance to, uh, like for instance, uh, fireflies in the forest. Uh, There are some parts of the world where uh, this is such a treat in summer for people to come out and view that it's, uh, but it's actually also really disruptive for the fireflies, uh, uh, the mating and the reproduction and all that. So uh, scientists have been out there gathering data. So this is like exciting that, I mean, it's unexpected, it's difficult, but it's also a gift in many ways, I think. So tell us uh, what it's like for you every day in Singapore this past six months, like uh, your daily routine. Yeah, so around that, we developed a different kind of rhythm. It's interesting because at the very beginning of the, when we were teaching our class at Yale NUS, one of the things that I really stress uh, in a lot of my courses is this idea of having a daily practice, um, something that you can return to even when uh, circumstances make it difficult to to work for long spans of time, is to have something small that you do for 10 minutes a day. Um, I always talk about it. I always get my students to do it. I haven't had to do it in a while. Um, so that was something that I really had to, I had to come back to that um, and and renegotiate that in the, under the terms of the circuit breaker in a really different way. Um, it was frustratingly slow, but it, but it also allows you to kind of keep your head in in the ideas of the studio, even when you can't be physically making things. So we had we had daily we would set a timer for um, for our family walk, but we would go out and and kind of figure out um, where where on campus we would walk. Uh, I would do sometimes I would split off to do a sound recording during that time. Uh, we brought our cameras along. So it was sort of doubled as this studio research time and yeah. and just like headspace outside of the house, way to get some exercise. That became a really important part of our practice. It really was studio time because we weren't allowed access to the studio yeah. for those 10 to 12 weeks. That was definitely a shift because I think if we had access to the studio, then that also would have allowed for a different kind of, but it was really all three of us. And we moved all of the studio tables and all of the materials into the apartment for that period of time. So it was quite cramped. It it really brings a new perspective to site specificity, right? I mean, like we talk about that a lot as uh, artists go in residence in different places, towns and cities. And uh, this engagement with the local community and the local site, but uh, it, not often do you get to actually live like a local, whether you like it or not. I think. I mean, one thing that was interesting is once cases started to rise um, everywhere globally in the end of March. Also, there was a question of should we stay or not, or should we go back? Mm-hmm. And so we had a number of conversations with Yale and US and. 
with people in the United States and what to do. Most We're visiting faculty there. And I think out of eight visiting faculty for the semester, we're the only ones who stayed. Everyone else, you know, for various reasons went back. And so I think at one point, yeah, the residency is this question of when going to a residency means staying. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it wasn't clear if, if or when we would be able to return. Yeah, so that was the other open question is, you know, um, the U.S. State Department in late March put out a call saying you really should return if you're overseas and can because we can't guarantee you'll be able to come back, you know, when, whenever. Um, it's you know it's not clear um, if flights will be going, and so it was a really hard decision that way. But we felt pretty committed to um, wanting to. I mean, there's there's practical aspects too. I mean, to be quite frank and honest, I mean, we're probably much safer here in Singapore and over these past few months than we would have been in the U.S. Given much the, uh, the given the um, conditions of COVID. Um, but also it was, you know, when are we ever going to be able to come back? Everything's changing. Everything's shifting. Air travel, the expense, the cost, the regulations will all be different from now on to the indefinite future. So who knows how many years from now would be a chance for us to travel internationally or, or here. So um, it was a crucial opportunity we didn't want to let go. Even if it meant us being locked up, basically, it, w- it was still going to be a, an opportunity that we couldn't have. I think it's been very interesting because we, yeah, as I was saying earlier, um, Andy and I both, we have these these separate practices and we have collaborated, for instance, on a, an animation project or an interview-based project in the past. But um, this was one of the first times that we've done something so long-term. And I think we came to it with this idea, the thematic connection between the works um, was was already set out and we were both on the same page there. But then the the process of gathering uh, of researching kind of diverged. And I, you know, like my response was very much, um, I, I was immediately started um, recording sounds and photographing things and drawing from them. Um, I have a very, my background is very much as a painter and a drawer, but I'm also very interested in sort of sensory, uh, multi-sensory experience of things. So I came in with, with one set of things and Andy came in with his, which he'll talk about it in a minute. Um, and we weren't quite sure how it was all going to come together. We kept kind of proposing these these overlapping projects, and then they didn't work out because we didn't, you know, like uh, we weren't always on the same page, or one of us would be more interested than the other. It's been really nice, actually, to see at the end of the the six months how the work that we've been doing separately in parallel is coming together into sort of a, a multimedia installation project. So mm-hmm. although we didn't set out to um, to do it that, I mean, I think we had that idea, but we didn't really know how it would work. Um, and then we had this other project that we started during the Circuit Breaker, which was that um, I often will make these kind of simple handmade books um, actually for our daughter. Um, but I realized as part of my own daily practice, oh, what if I made this multimedia, uh, you know, like using all these different kinds of paper and, and um, household products like cereal boxes and cracker boxes and whatever whatever repurposed materials we had around the house to make these simple simple books um, and draw draw or collage in a page each day as a way to start the day. Um, so then during the residency we during the circuit breaker we had this idea to to make each make one of those books for each other. Um, so each book in itself has lots of layers in terms of these different materials to respond to. Sometimes, you know, one of us would paint on a page or add a layer of collage, and then we hand those books off to each other um, as the the book that each morning we would uh, do something in. So now we have these really richly layered um, artist books that are made collaboratively, but also separately. Yeah, I got to see those books when I was at your studio two weeks ago. They're really, really nice, you know. And uh, it's just uh, like this ongoing collage of ideas and that's taking place in a different kind of discussion. Yeah, I think it's quite beautiful. Um, you will be able to bring those notebooks with you, but you won't be able to bring those gorgeous installations. Um, those uh, Andy, you picked up some 
uh, leaves, plants, and some of them are huge, some of them are small, and you, the way you painted them and how it was set up when you finally got into studio that first day, uh, I think that was spectacular. But you're not going to be able to bring all that in the real. They're too fragile. And also, I don't think the U.S. would allow you to bring seeds and plants in, I think. Um do you want to talk a little bit about the process that led to that? Yeah. Um, the yeah. So the the leaves you're referring to so far. A, a lot of my work, I I like to collect materials wherever I am and locally, and then um, basically alter and adapt them. And uh, for us, one thing, of course, we've just I think is every day for a Singaporean, but is mind blowing for us is the plant life and the shape of plants and leaves. And as they dry, as they curl, um, you know, for someone who's sort of more in the sculptural world, it's just so beautiful, so intriguing, all of these forms that are just so prolific everywhere. And so, and then they fall off of a tree and they're just there. And especially during the circuit breaker, they were collecting, there weren't people cleaning up all of these fallen leaves necessarily or, or organic material. And so, um, bringing a, a whole series of them I brought in and as you mentioned like would sort of colorize paint in multicolored ways and um, because it was its sort of own canvas its own material but that also allowed to me to enhance the shape of these these leaves and their physical scale um, and then conceptually I was just interested in the idea I had been reading about the garden city concept and how in the late 70s and 80s especially I guess um but correct me if I'm wrong, but the reading I'd done was talking about how Lee Kuan Yew was really interested in adding more color to that. It, um, for the Garden City also had has a strong aesthetic element. And so, but the native plants didn't necessarily have the same level of color that ones from South America or Africa might. And so there was a concerted effort to import more plants and make the whole island sort of this botanic garden. And, and so, that was actually something that had happened. I, that was a trend that had also uh, happened in California, a, a different project I'd done at a botanic garden where Southern California also is like very monochrome, actually natively. And so as people settled California, there was also a move to make it more uh, dynamically colorful and beautiful and import a lot of plants from Hawaii and colorize the landscape. And so that's essentially what I'm trying to do is both enhance these leaves that are dead and have now become just like tan and gray, but then give them these supernatural colors, right? They're not green, they're pink, purple, blue. Um, they're ombre in different ways or have fades. And I like tentatively, I'm calling that body of work uh, RGB for LKY. <laughs> like thinking about it as like this gesture that's also acknowledging this sort of history of the way the garden and um, botanical forms and aesthetics affects the way uh, we treat landscape. And so that's a site-specific aspect too. And we've, we've been working on, right now we're working on a series of um, small paintings. We both have been doing small watercolor paintings of things we've come across, including a lot of the creatures that we come across are not native to Singapore, like the giant African snail or the um, hornbill. Um, and, the hornbill, uh, I think, is native, but then it was gone. Well, yeah, the, the latest one is was reintroduced, right, yeah. recently. And so um, and so we are trying to put together a series of postcards that we're actually, we're going to call host cards, because Singapore is sort of a host to all of these other species yeah. that have either been brought purposely and introduced or, or come. And um, what does that say about, you know, uh, Singapore as this sort of global node, you know, that's that's very intentional in one sense and then incidental in another. We've been hosted by Singapore as artists, but we're basically outsiders here. But so are a lot of these other species that come and go in transit through Singapore. And then of course, there's the idea of the host during COVID right. <laughs> and this whole other the kind body. of notion of the body as a host. And um, so we want to sort of make a series of these host card postcards uh, that sort of make sense of our, observations and some of our painting practices, but also this like 
larger ecological question. I think one thing we can include right now uh, might be some elements of the sound walk that Krista has been working on. I know it's not a near completion yet, but if you would share a bit, I think that will really bring in some of the uh, flavor and um, and kind of like tone and color to the conversation. Okay, let's listen to this. Okay, that sounds really exciting, Krista. Um, I have to say the sound of being in the tropics is completely different. The cicadas that, that I was hearing, that was one of the, when I first arrived in Singapore, one of the most exciting sounds. And it was funny, actually, when I started the semester, I was hearing them and I was like, is that is that like a lawn trimmer or a weed whacker? Mm-hmm. Like what? I couldn't figure out if it was a mechanical noise or an organic noise. And the, some of the students who are from Singapore that I asked, they were like, oh, I don't know. I think they're doing, they're doing landscaping. I think that's what it is. And I was like, I, I don't know, because it would become irregular and um, get faster in a way that I was pretty sure was a, I was pretty sure that was a, um, an insect. So then I went looking for them and, and recording them. And, and in all these different natural spaces, you would start to hear different, slightly different species and different rhythms. Mm. So to bring all those together as instruments was really exciting mm. as, as kind of these, um, these overlapping um, rhythms and overlapping, vibrating, sonorous. Songs. Well, I think it's significant what you said about you took a lot of that during the circuit breaker. And I, I think um, those the quality of the cicada sounds, the frogs, everything was different then too because there was so much less other ambient industrial noise pollution like where we live right on basically Clemente Road. And so the amount of traffic there decreased so much that the background sort of royal of uh, traffic noise, airplane noise, all of these things that were sort of in the typical soundscape were gone or we're so far reduced. And so your ability to record um, the frogs, record the birds, um, record the cicadas was enhanced during the circuit breaker time because they're just, there was more bandwidth available. Yeah. Usually those animals are sort of competing with all of the anthropogenic noise. So you guys got to stay on uh, a bit longer than you were expecting and it gave you a really different view of Singapore, right? Uh, do you want to talk a bit about what you've been doing since uh, we entered phase two, which is sort of like a mini back to normal, not quite normal situation? Parts that we've been making separately all this time mm-hmm. um, and putting them in one space. And then, of course, we can invite each other in as a visitor <laughs> and, and work on it together. Yeah, but but the studio days are, are really a part. And the other, you know, I'll go to the studio and Andy will stay home with our daughter for that day. Uh, and then we switch Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a, it's been a nice way to kind of have alone time and together hands-on collaborative time. And then, yeah, we've been taking some chance, some opportunities to also meet um, people we had talked to over Zoom, like met sort of uh, just by email, but to actually sort of visit their gardens, visit their sites, and then do interviews. So we've been doing a lot of interviews with permaculturists, gardeners, landscape designers for the last, um, you know, week or so. In this time post-COVID of of not having, um, you know, we may not be able to travel very easily anymore. Um, and the art world was getting to be so. There was this expectation that your work be really that you travel all the time, that there'd be this international kind of presence. Um, so if you had any ethical concerns with 
with uh, jet fuel, right? Like uh, with flying constantly, or if you had practical concerns as a parent or as a as somebody who's who just doesn't want to constantly be gone, um, how do you negotiate that and still have a career in the arts? So it's actually been a really interesting space to kind of think about those questions and conversation with other other artists here in Singapore, um, and that will continue to grow hopefully. Yeah, and I I think that um, more more likely than not, by the time you get back to Chicago, I think the conversation there would have changed quite substantially from uh, the things you guys were talking about before you left. You know, like uh, part of uh, what um, we've been talking about um, here. Um, but I know this conversation is happening everywhere in the world. Is how artists, curators, critics, and uh, museums. Can respond and create work in the what what people are describing as the post-pandemic new normal, but even that is some time off because we're definitely not anywhere near post-pandemic yet. Um, the statistics are a bit scary. I I would say. I mean, I I was reading about how it's possible that eight percent of the museums that have closed temporarily during the this period might not reopen again you know so I'm not sure whether these are contemporary spaces or having like more traditional collections but I think we're talking about a very different kind of art world and even if we extend to the art market which seems more resilient than any other part of the art world I think um Christie's just did this like global auction where they did like one after another in four cities. And so the marketplace is really different. Uh, All this, I think, will change the way we work and not just how we move through the world, but how artworks are moving and being uh, shown. So um, I'm just wondering, like going forward, uh, a lot is so uncertain. But uh, where do you go from here with what you've been doing the last uh, six months here in Singapore? It will. We are treating it very much as a research-based practice. And, and we're being very playful in the studio right now while we can, while we have that space. Um, but, uh, but we are. We're collecting a lot and thinking also about when we return to Chicago, I think we'll have this whole new lens through which to, to think about... Um, that relationship to between the city and the garden, you know, uh, and how how Chicago sees itself as a city and a garden, and how I mean, just thinking about it, it's it's so vastly different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and going back to I mean, we're already connected with um, forest school communities in Chicago, so to bring the, all the insights for what you've learned here back there, mm-hmm. so it goes for the garden, it goes also for the cultural reproducers project. Yeah. So I think it will give us like just a very different lens to reconsider all of the things that we do there too, but in a a much different light. And then also, of course, connect them. You know, so we're hoping that um, we're cultivating connections that we can maintain here and, um, you know, cultivate over time. Doing a panel discussion on Zoom seemed like a kind of a sad second choice or, you know, like disappointment. And now it's becoming this really dynamic uh, creative space um, which really allows for some interesting, um, interesting creative opportunities, but also it allows for that that international um, exchange to happen in a different in a different kind of way, and it makes it more accessible to different you know to people yeah. who maybe couldn't travel before yeah. for a variety of reasons, whether it was financial, whether it was family, whether it was uh, you know illness, <laughs> whatever. Um, so I, yeah, I'm excited to see where that goes. I think the conversations and the the connections we've made here will continue to grow. We've been talking, we, we met um, a woman who runs a, a green circle eco farm, uh, Evelyn Eng Lim the other day, and she runs a food forest uh, in uh, Northwest Singapore. And so her philosophy is that um, there are no weeds. And so she started the farm 21 years ago. And at that time, it was a matter of growing certain species and then weeding the other ones that were you know, not supposed to be there because they're taking up land and nutrition. But then she she started to develop an attitude of that's sort of more informed by permaculture that, you know, the plants know, are negotiating themselves who should grow where and when. And maybe I'll invite these a lot of these plants and learn about them because it turns out a lot of these things that were weeds are edible. 
and, and are medicinal in Chinese medicine. So she takes the philosophy of letting them grow and then harvesting them um, selectively, but also allowing a certain amount of the food to be eaten by animals, right? She's like... Like potentially 40% of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a large even, percent. Like, and that's her tith, you know, that's the amount she has to give to the ecosystem. So she's, she knows that squirrels are going to eat a certain number of her jackfruit. But that's what she owes those animals because they're also um, pooping and fertilizing the ground. They're taking care of other pests that would have affected the, um, you know, taken... The other thing she's growing. Yeah, the other thing she's growing. So she's taking a very holistic view of this give and take. Right. And so this negotiation is fundamentally part of the garden. I really like the idea of the botanical invitations. Uh, and uh, actually, that's really quite uh, spot on because uh, the butterfly pea flower actually uh, grows best on infertile land. And uh, because it releases, I think, potassium or something, it makes the infertile land fertile. And actually, the more you plug, the more it grows. So it actually helps it. So this is something that is very like in line with what you're saying. I think also this idea of the the, the garden as a space, you know, like on the surface of things, it seems like the garden is a space that uh, where humans are in control of nature, where, you know, we think about, I mean, especially if we're, we're thinking about this ideal of this Chinese scholar's garden, that's all about curating and, balance and, uh, you know, on an aesthetic level, uh, this, this, the microcosm, uh, the world is a microcosm in this, in this tiny space that you're, that you're controlling and curating. But the garden, yeah, I, I think what, what Andy just said about the garden being a, a negotiate, a negotiation or a series of negotiations with the rest of ecology where humans are not in control, the humans couldn't do any of what they're doing in that space without the cooperation and participation of other organisms. Um, it's also it's also making me think of, again, this conversation I had with Darren Quack, who runs the uh, forest school here in Singapore, was talking about um, when he takes small children into the tall grass, for instance, they have a practice of, uh, you know, the the children just learn to use a stick to kind of shake the grass ahead of them and ask, they ask permission to enter. It's a way of warning the snakes and things that, that they're coming so the snakes can get out of the way. They don't want to interact with us. Um, but but asking asking the, the forest for permission to enter, I thought was a really beautiful way of, of thinking about, you know, it's not like, get out of my way, I'm going to build this thing, <laughs> I'm going to force these things to grow. We have to have a, an ongoing conversation and negotiation, we have to ask for help, we have to uh, collaborate with all these other organisms to do what it is that we, that we want to do. It's not like building technology, it's, mm -hmm. it's a much more unruly network of... <laughs> Of organisms. Is the snake sometimes a bureaucrat? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's a question that, um, you know, not in a negative sense. I, I think snakes are wonderful, right? But it's like, um, you know, going back to what you said about, um, like, whose public land is it? Who gets to decide? And so we were talking to a permaculturalist who's who, again, kind of does gardening in between buildings of um, the spaces uh, left between large tower buildings, residential spaces. And he says that it's been really interesting in terms of community building because people give him seeds, the other people then collect fruit or food and he can give them. And that that has created a, n another level of community that didn't exist between him and the other people that lived right next to him, but he never knew. And so, um, but that connects to something where he also was talking about water like wanting to have water for his plants and collecting water. And he, he claimed, he said that, you know, technically he shouldn't collect the rainwater because Singapore owns the rainwater. He doesn't necessarily have the legal right to collect this water for his own plants. That should be going into the ground, into the catchment, into the reservoir. And so I, that struck me too, just as like, wow, something as fundamental as the rain, who owns it or who has control? And that again brings up the question of the garden because it's, it's always about a space of, you know, the Chinese garden of, of harmony, but what does that harmony mean in terms of order? Mm -hmm. You know, like in the Judeo-Christian tradition, people often think of the garden as a place of innocence. Because, um, you know, Adam and Eve were innocent and then they ate, right, ate from the fruit tree of knowledge and then they were kicked out. But 
really it was a space of control. That's why they were kicked out. They broke the rules, right? There was a rule. You don't eat from the, the tree of knowledge. They decide to break the rule. They get kicked out of the garden, out of the space of order into the wilderness. So the relationship with uh, even uh, nature can be very different, even if we think about them as uh, sort of fellow inhabitants and think about ways of uh, this, uh, what, what we discuss as ethical cohabitation, right? Um, so um, have you encountered some of these uh, spiritual animistic beliefs uh, in your conversations with the local people? A little bit. I mean, I was actually going to say that's that's one that's the one place where I feel like there's a difference. Um, again, in the the sort of nature play um, practice here, is there there is much more of a uh, narrative around um, around respect for nature, but also yeah, asking asking the you know asking the trees for permission, um, asking the grass for permission to to enter. Um, but yeah, there's certainly there's like so much um, mythology around ghosts and about around um, like the banana trees connected with these ghosts. Um, I was just <laughs> I was just reading a an interview about there was the, there's this this new uh, movie that just came out and I'm not going to pronounce the name right but about the banana tree uh, ghost um, the revenge of the Pontianak and I was reading about the the film and they were saying oh yeah when while we were filming there were some actual Pontianak that came out to watch us but they were just interested in the acting and so we asked them permission to be there and it was fine. They were just interested in what we were doing. And I love that way of, you know, I think in the in the West, we think of ghosts as these malevolent, scary, dangerous spirits. But here it's much more just sort of part of the, uh, you know, it's part of the ecosystem, right? Just that spiritual relationship with the land and with the, the plants and animals, I think adds a really, a really rich layer to things mm-hmm. that I, that I, We'll continue to think about. I, you know, I think that that really was um, made a big impact on me in the way that I approached nature with with rever- a different kind of reverence. It's another layer of um, keeping things in balance, right? There, that the idea that there's this sort of spiritual presence watching over and making sure that you ask for permission, or if if you're not, um, if you don't treat the, the land properly, that some, you know someone's watching and it might not go so well for you. Uh, you know, it, there, it's like, um, I don't know, there's cert, it, it's sort of a psychological layer that, that, that helps keep things in harmony in a, in a different kind of way beyond just feeling guilty that you use too much plastic or something, right? Beyond this sort of... Um, a different kind of social space. Yeah, it's yeah. a different kind of social space, a different kind of social responsibility maybe that yeah. you're part of this, this intergenerational... Uh, contract and as the as the virus has has reminded us all we're not really in charge of it all we're part of it we're very much we're just as much a part of it as as the pangolin or the monkey or the pandan plant or you know like all of these things are um send their own signals make their own uh you know i don't i don't know if if i can say choices but you know the monkey's making a choice about whether it's gonna grab your bag of food or not um (laughs) Um, but, but yeah, we're just part of this ecosystem, um, and we think we're in control of it, and we're not. I think it would be so interesting to revisit this topic like six months down the road when you guys are at the, in the heart of life in Chicago, and all this seems like so far away and almost like a strange dream. Let's see what happens when you guys go back to. Um, Chicago and whether you start bathing with uh, flowers in the water and things like that. Thanks, Michelle, Andy, and Krista for this meaningful conversation. Today we have learned about relationships between insects, birds, and trees during an anthropause. The potentiality of ethical cohabitation between multiple species on this planet. And we have found links between Chicago and Singapore. This episode provides an ecologically rich jungle from which to reconsider our own relationships with the natural world. Our next episode will continue 
with artist-in-residence Sai Hua Quan Chen in late 2020. Thank you for joining us on the AIR program podcast. This series of conversations with artists residing in Singapore for one semester focuses on artistic process and research occurring in Southeast Asia. This podcast reflects upon community dialogues, scholarly conversations, and radical questions that arise during each artist's residency. Artists embrace uncertainty and channel it into creative works. Artists reimagine the world as we have conceived of it thus far toward a more informed, colorful, and empathetic future. The aims of nurturing artistic process, stimulating community, criticality, dialogue, and creativity are center stage. This AIR stimulates students, faculty, and community members to engage with artists as living, breathing members of the woven tapestry in this place we inhabit. Art can be seen increasingly in the present tense thanks to this AIR program. The arts in liberal arts is truly alive through long engagements with international and local artists committed to alternative visions. Artists share their rigorous curiosity while actively working indoors and outdoors, in public and in private, in common spaces and online. Stay tuned for more dialogue where insights are found through artistic thinking. This is AIR director, James Jack, saying goodbye until next time. This podcast is supported by the Tan Chin Tuan Chinese Culture and Civilization Program. You have been listening to the Yale and U.S. College Artist-in-Residence podcast. I'm Alexis Chen, Selection Committee member, student, and designer.